So um, we want to welcome everyone to the Love First podcast. And we're doing a series on disabilities and special needs. And so several friends have come alongside us and said, well, let's, let's talk about it in real terms. Let's talk about what it means to have a family member with disabilities. Uh, some of the conversations you're hearing are from people with disabilities. And we recognize that not everyone can advocate for themselves. And so we, the voices that are coming alongside are not just uh, voices of awareness, but they're also teaching us how to advocate. Love first, I know. Love first, I know. Lord, take control. Lord, take control. Lord, take control. Uh, on our uh, this in this particular conversation, we're going to get to hear from parents and professionals, and that's going to be very meaningful. And so we're excited to. Uh, Welcome our guests today. I'm going to have each one of them introduce themselves. And mm -hmm. now we're going to start. Uh, Tina, why don't you start us off? My name is Tina Sneward. I'm married to Frank. I have a 21-year-old son named Matthew. He was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. And we love Matthew and enjoy mm -hmm. uh, watching him uh, grow up. It's interesting. A few of us on the call can remember the day he was born, and that's, uh, <laughs> yes. that's pretty special. Um, all right, Charlene, would you introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Charlene Evans. I am a physical therapist. Uh, my husband is Carl Evans. Uh, I am currently working in the educational setting, public schools, with children uh, having cognitive and physical disabilities from three years old to 21.99. They graduated mm. age 22. Okay, okay. Excuse me. Okay. And you know what, let's do this. This is really an interesting part of this ongoing conversation that Charlene has already surfaced. We'll put a pin in it, but we're coming back to this idea of aging out. Mm -hmm. Aging out various programs. Very important part of this conversation. Kelly, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Kelly Wood. Um, I've been going to North Atlanta for a little over a year now. Um, I got my degree in therapeutic recreation and I've been working in the field for well over 15 years. Um, plus, I also, um, since I've gotten married, I have some family members that do have developmental disabilities. Ah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I uh, appreciate, first of all, thank you for joining uh, this call. Uh, it's been wonderful to get to know you and your family and you are family to us so thank you for joining us uh joe why don't you introduce yourself thanks Tom. uh yeah hi my name's joe Stryker, and my wife alicia and i are the parents of three children the oldest of whom wyatt uh was diagnosed with autism when he was 18 months old so like tina uh, we're parenting a, a young man mm -hmm. uh, who is turning into a grown man at some point that that has a, a, a developmental disabilities and has autism. Yes. So we're hearing some language that I think sometimes when people are entering the conversation, um, they're not sure how these words are used. So we talk about disabilities, we talk about special needs, 
we talk about physical disabilities. And of course, um, Kelly and Charlene both are going to be able to help us with that specifically from a, a therapeutic side. We talk about um, uh, mental and intellectual disabilities, developmental. We talk about disabilities of injury and illness, which are different, obviously. Right. Um, and so why don't we do this? Um, Tina, why don't you share with us some of your earliest memories as a mom when you were walking into this journey of raising a son with uh, autism? Let's see. Some of you might remember a dear sister named uh, Priscilla Parsons. Mm -hmm. She invited me to lunch. It was November 2001, and she said to me, you know, at Matthew Smith's checkup, you may want to ask him about his speech because I've been noticing that he's not really, he doesn't seem to be developing just like other kids. So I made an appointment right for right after his third birthday. And when the doc started asking, like, well, does he know his name is Matthew? Can he talk this, talk that? we were answering no to too many questions. That's when all the referrals started, the referrals to uh, get speech tested, get hearing tested, get, get put on a waiting list for the Marcus Institute, which is the institute that deals with a lot of um, people with autism. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was that we got on the waiting list for Marcus. It was seven months. I called the pediatrician's office back and said, that's not acceptable. We need something faster. A few days later, she calls and says, I have an appointment with you for the follow for you for the following Monday. And she told me, I was on the phone with these people when a cancellation <laughs> came through and I put you in. This was at a, this was at a neurologist's office we had a very long drive and talked talk with the people. And then we had talked with a physician's assistant, asked us a bunch of questions. And then the neurologist came in. And I think it was like the next six words just was, bam, your son has pervasive developmental disorder, which is on the autism spectrum. And... I had, a, I had a nice cry that night in bed. But then by the end of the week, what, I, what was interesting was that we got three, I got three phone calls, wham, 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 almost right in a row, setting up Matthew for speech therapy and getting him evaluated by the school system and then having a medical procedure done to check his hearing. So it's been kind of an up and up and down thing and it just kind of hits you out of the blue when you're just trying mm -hmm. to, you're kind of dog paddling, trying to keep from drowning. <laughs> hey, so Tina, while you've been talking, I've been watching Joe. <laughs> it, it, it is almost a complete parallel. I mean, there, 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 I don't think there's anything that you've said, Tina, that doesn't exactly exactly mirror what we went through with Wyatt. Uh, uh -huh. It's amazing. Fill, fill in a few blanks for us. 
Yes. Uh, I think for us, the you know the the the, the notion of uh, people that were working with us with Wyatt early in his uh, infancy noticing things is, is a very strong parallel. Mm-hmm. I think I think where where we probably start to diverge a little bit uh, has to do with how perhaps a mother and a father react differently to a son, especially uh, mm. not to minimize in any sense uh, uh, the, the gender specific issues there. But uh, I think, I think as a father of a firstborn child, you have some, you come into that with some preconceptions and some prejudices about what fatherhood is going mm. to mean for you uh, raising a son, especially if you're, uh, particularly into sports and baseball, uh, like 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 I am, and like my wife is, and so and so when you we build up these these visions of things before they happen, so that we can set ourselves on a course for them, and then when you hear something in your life that suggests that things may not be exactly as you have imagined them, you have to tear those down again, mm-hmm. and so the tearing down of that preconceived notion of what fatherhood is, uh, especially fatherhood for, uh, of a child who has a disability or a, 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 a particular defined thing that you didn't know much about when you found out about it. That, that's, a, that's a pretty serious uh, task to undertake, especially uh, when it also has ramifications for your, your significant other and your spouse too. And yep. so, and so that this, the, the, the long-term implications on a marriage on, on parenthood are, are serious and, and, you know, far reaching. So. And, and for you and Tina, both, uh, of course, Matthew's an only child, but firstborn, Wyatt firstborn. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm, I'm watching uh, everyone on the screen empathize mm-hmm. with you. I think you've, I, I honestly, I, I think you've touched a, not a nerve, but a vital vein of understanding. I mm-hmm. think you tapped into something where I think uh, people can relate to that very well. Let me ask you this real quickly. Um, in fact, uh, Kelly and Charlene, what I'm gonna do after this brief is I'm gonna ask the two of you to speak to receiving parents who have just found this out, okay? And your experience with that, but Joe, did you have anyone in your family or childhood growing up that had a disability that you knew of? Uh, there was nobody in my immediate family that did, and, and nobody really that I was close to growing up. Uh, I grew up in a rural community in, in West Central Ohio, a very small school, and my my recollection of developmental disabilities and people who were differently abled uh, is pretty arm's length. And, and part of that may have to do with the prejudices at, at the time I was growing up and the place I was growing up that maybe kept me from forming better friendships with people that I did know there. Uh, yeah. But in all honesty, no, that's, that was not something that I spent a lot of time around as, as a child mm-hmm. growing up or really had any uh, uh, in my family. So why it is your baptism? <laughs> That's correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Amen. Okay. You know, so uh, Kelly, tell us a little bit about what it's like as a therapist to receive someone 
who is just kind of, as they've described, kind of that journey is hitting them and they're just kind of stepping into it. What has been your experience? I think on a therapist side, you really just have to have a lot of understanding because they're going to go through a wave of emotions. They're going to go through denial. They're going to go through anger. They're going to ask, why God? Why me? Why my child? They're going to have sympathy. They're going to be sad. And you just have to ride that wave with them um, to really understand, you know, you, you have to get on their level. Um, especially in these types of situations, it's not just about the child, in my opinion. It's about the entire family because everybody is affected. Um, so just a lot of understanding. Um, sorry, I apologize if you can hear my kids in the background. They're going we actually <laughs> I can't hear a thing. We actually yeah. love it. That's great. That's great. And Charlene, <laughs> I noticed you kind of nodding. What would you What would you add from from your experience? Absolutely, echo everything Kelly just said. Um, and you're going to have parents. Um, in my experience, I've had parents that uh, want to know more, um, despite feeling crushed. They want to know more about the diagnosis. They want to know more about the path of of rehab and what's next and what's next. Um, and just being there to kind of guide them through the process, uh, guide them through some resources. Uh, and I find it um, sometimes even uh, cautioning parents, don't necessarily listen to your friends because every child is, is unique and mm -hmm. every situation is different. So one rehab may not work for another. One doctor may not work for another. Uh, I'm limited on what I can suggest to parents, but at the same time, just letting parents know that there are resources out there. There are not as many as I'd like to see, but there are resources out there for parents and just helping them to feel comfortable to seek those resources out. Okay, Charlene, I'm gonna stay with you for a moment because your career path, uh, we might call it a crick straight path, right? <laughs> you know, you kind of made your way and you are still pursuing uh, because this is just such a deep gifting from God and deep passion. Yes. Can you kind of encapsulate a little bit uh, your career path and how oh you ended up right back where you are? Right back where I started from. Um, actually, um, when I think about physical therapy. I remember growing up and, and being in high school thinking I wanted to be a pediatrician. I always knew mm. I wanted maybe to work with children. I wasn't quite sure. Mm. So I was able to shadow and co-op in high school with uh, in a facility for cerebral palsy, for children with cerebral palsy, with a physician. But I noticed a PT and what they were doing, and I asked if I could switch. Um, and that was kind of like my moment um, and I decided this is what I want to do so I um, went to the University of Carolina Chapel Hill mm -hmm. graduated in physical therapy came out and from that point I went my first job into a residential facility I think we had probably close to 300 residents and they were all under the age of 25 Wow. Uh, this was a state facility and there was only two physical therapists at the time we ended up with three um, but um, that job gave me so much fulfillment, um, and it just helped me to grow, but I became a little too attached to some of the residents um, in the state size. Um, mm. I had to take a break, went to work with adults, <laughs> uh, 
Um, not my cup of tea. Um, geriatrics, yes. Adults like ourselves, no. Uh, but I did that, uh, then got married, went to Pennsylvania, worked in a research hospital there. Uh, research was okay, but I always gravitated back to pediatrics. Uh, left there. The military, by the way, I am military, a military wife. So we were moving around each location I took what I could find. Um, from there I went and I started working in geriatrics in a hospital with acute care and yada yada. Uh, and I just didn't feel that passion. I didn't feel those creative juices flowing. Mm -hmm. I came to Atlanta, uh, took a job again at a rehab facility for geriatric uh, clientele. And um, God answered my prayer. Uh, the company went belly up because of Medicaid cuts. And I took a job at North Atlanta Preschool, teaching preschool. Uh, and there at preschool, that one particular year, there was a child that had some developmental disabilities and they put that child intentionally in the class with Beth Cravat and myself. And I realized, you know what, this is where I need to be. So I came out of that after a year and went into the public school systems with children with physical and developmental disabilities. And that's where I've been ever since. Wow. So in and out of, adult and children but this is home for me and it's been home for about 20 years now well thank you for sharing that because i think sometimes when we hear therapists it's like anything we have like a frame or a box and all therapists fit in a box even the two of you don't have the you know uh, uh particular role in therapy and kelly i Come back to yours in a moment. Um, Tina, can you take a moment and tell us what was it like going, going into the public school system, then kind of elementary, middle school, high school with an autistic child? We have been extremely fortunate because we're in Gwinnett County. Gwinnett County has some wonderful services. Matthew went into pre-K at the age of three, and like all moms, I worried about him, but, and all the teachers that he'd had, I can only think of just a couple of teachers that were just not really up to snuff. Everybody else, they seemed to work pretty well with him. Um, just as he got older, one of the things with special needs kids is that you might move to a school district thinking, well, the school's wonderful there, etc. But when you have a special needs kid, the school that whose district that you live in, that's not necessarily the school they're going to go to. I think Matthew's only been at his assigned school, I think it was like for one year. And nearly every year I was holding my breath thinking, okay, is he going to get switched out of the school this year? And when he went to high school, every year I was just holding my breath, just thinking, please, God, don't let him switch schools, and please let him just keep the same teacher. He had one teacher for the first year, and then she left and went to another job in the public school system. And, but the person who stepped in was the intern that had worked with them. And he was their teacher for the next three years. But um, just, walk, just walking through it, you, 
there are things you learn the language of IEP meetings. You learn how to take take notes. I still find it very amusing that on an IEP at one time somebody had talked about Matthew's thing. It's like non-preferred activities. Like, yeah. Was it a long it, list? No. <laughs> remember how long it was but it's like non-preferred activities like well they're non-preferred <laughs> but and sometimes it can be hard for a teacher just trying to get used to your child matthew had a difficult year one year and then the next year he went in with a same school but different teacher so he was in a different grade and very quickly she figured out well the reason why Matthew's behaving such and such is because teacher let him do it. Mm -hmm. And she knew how to very kindly but firmly lay down the law. And once Matthew realized what was expected of him, he approved very quickly. And the, so I guess, and I guess the journey, it can be kind of hard to explain to somebody that has just not completely been through it. And what's also true with special needs kids is that we're fortunate, at least in Gwinnett County, when right after a child finishes their senior year in high school, they've got four more years of eligibility for public school services their eligibility will expire the day before their 22nd birthday. Matthews is going to expire next year. Mm -hmm. The program he's in right now in Gwinnett County, it's called STRIVE. I forget what the acronym stands for, but what he is doing right now is going into the community and they learn different types of job skills. Mm -hmm. Matthew has been in places like Home Depot, it's been to some of the schools in Gwinnett County. He has been at the YMCA. They teach him stuff like cleaning up the windows, cleaning the organizing, this organizing stuff, learning how to laminate. And it's all in the hope that they can have skills where they can be employable once they leave the public school system. Yeah. So I find that it's it is a it is a good program and Gwinnett has been a good school system to us. I also realized my experience is not like everybody else's because there's a saying, Joe, you may have heard this. There's a saying in the autism community that if you meet one child on the spectrum, you have met one Everyone. child on right. the spectrum. So every kid is different and Repeat you're that. say that again for everybody. okay. Louder for the people in the back. <laughs> if you have met one child on the spectrum, you have met one child on the spectrum. Yes, thank you. And one of the reasons, <laughs> Tina, I wanted to have you say that loud and clear <laughs> is because in the conversation, sometimes a word comes up, not a lot, because I've noticed that people in this arena have worked very hard at paying attention to how how they say things 
but a word that sometimes slips in is mm-hmm. a word like normal. Oh yeah. Word like typical, right? And as you describe some of your experience, people might say, well, my children doesn't have, my child doesn't have autism, but we've had mm-hmm. my child, you know. Yep. So people can hear echoes of something they're familiar with. Uh-huh. But, but the idea that you might actually wonder if your child is going to a school and you stay in the same house, but they might have to move your kid. That's mm-hmm. not as common. And so what people start to realize is, okay, for whatever might sound familiar, there's a whole world that does not sound familiar. That's mm-hmm. very, very different. So something I'd like for us to kind of uh, – step step toward is joe you brought up that it impact you and charlene both brought up that it impacts the family right Mm -hmm. you you, you're speaking to yourself and uh one of the things you and i enjoy is we're both uh sports fans that probably need a recovery (laughs) program but uh uh, uh, that's been rough it's been very rough (laughs) Um, but you have you you came in with these imaginations mm-hmm. about fatherhood that you shared, but you also begin in your opening statements to kind of drift toward, hey, this impacts a family, this impacts a marriage, right? And mm-hmm. it, of course, you know, you have the children, right? So it is right. in them. Can you speak a little bit to ways that's, that living into this has impacted your family or other families in your community group that maybe you're aware of and you've seen some things that maybe um, that uh, people might not, not readily be aware of? Sure. I, I think one of the first things that I remember, you know, and, and Tina shared a little bit about the, the first day that she got sort of an official diagnosis, right, Tina? You talked a little bit about that. I remember something similar, and I think Alicia, when she talks about her experience, it sounds very similar to, to yours, Tina, that she just, she had a good cry, right? And and I remember that very distinctly. And I remember as, as, as a father dealing with that and a husband trying to help all of us understand that, I remember thinking, and I said out loud, I remember very distinctly, I said, we've got, whatever we do, we've got to remember that we can't let this rob us of the joys that we mm. will experience in life, right? Mm. And so, and so that, that is a, what that means to me is that as we think about, as she and I thought about having more children uh, mm. and the fears, the fears that can come with that because of so much of the research that suggests that there can be a genetic disposition to uh, to autism that could impact siblings, right? And and the decision to have other children and uh, the prevalence of that genetic disposition to boys versus girls, right? And 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 then talking about the sibling relationships that start to grow when you do make that decision and you do start to have mm-hmm. a growing family, you know, all of a sudden the relationships that you know, at first it's, you know, the stereotypical thing, Don, about baseball and playing catch with your kid. That's the thing in your head, right? And then you start to realize, oh, 
my, my children are going to perhaps interact with each other differently because of this. And our, our approach to parenting with Wyatt is going to be different than our approach to parenting with Vivian and Nolan mm-hmm. um, means that they're going to see those differences and they're going to have to be okay with that. You know, this notion that all children bring to their, their thought process about, well, that's just not fair, right? Mm-hmm. How, it's not fair that he gets to do that or doesn't get to yeah. do that. All of that yep. goes out the window in a completely different way. Uh, right. And so then uh, the relationships with peers take on a different meaning because all of a sudden, you know, we start talking about respite care, for instance, that's one of the questions that you've put on the list. Right. You know, we have to plan things a lot differently than a lot of other parents do. So when we talk about structured play dates or visits to uh, grandma and grandpa's house or all of these other things, there's a different approach that has to be taken because we have to respect some of the things about why mm-hmm. it's different. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. This is incredible. I'm thinking of 50 questions to ask. <laughs> right? Oh my goodness. But do you mind if we do you mind if we dig a little deeper into this? Oh yeah, dive right in. All right. Yes. So, so Joe, when Vivian was born, mm-hmm. what what were did, was that experience in what way was that experience uh, kind of reshaped uh, having a child with autism already? The, well, we were, uh, initially, we were very interested in finding out the gender of Vivian because we, we wanted to prepare ourselves if we had a second son that there was a higher likelihood that a, a, another son could be autistic in addition to Wyatt. And so, and so there was uh, this, this notion of, well, we, we want to know what we're getting ourselves into and then also wanting to have a sister for Wyatt as well, because I think there's, there's this, again, you talk about the stereotypical family. It's like a boy and a girl, if we're having two children. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there's, there's all of the, you know, we're we're here with a couple of, uh, of therapists. And so they'll understand too, that once you start scheduling the therapies that come Mm -hmm. along with that, with that, uh, that diagnosis, then you start to talk about how you share the responsibilities of parenthood together in a way that doesn't necessarily fall along the traditional lines or the traditional mm-hmm. discussions you would have about that. So, so when Alicia's absolutely, you know, ready to go in, in, uh, in July with Vivian, it's like, all right, we, we've got a lot of stuff going on with Wyatt right mm-hmm. now that we have to, keep moving. And so it brings in others in the family to help with certain things in a way that's different. And so when Wyatt's, you know, we have Wyatt in a, in a school uh, at that time, a private school that was uh, extremely expensive, but well worth it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's the whole other discussion. You know, (laughs) we have to maintain a lot of this other uh, connection to, to Wyatt's needs when ideally you'd be spent a lot more time thinking about, bringing another child in and her being sort of the focus of everybody's attention and then understanding, you know, Wyatt interacting with that child, the the uncertainty of how he's going to take it, how he's going to 
react to uh, having a sister, what he, what that means to him. Um, uh, and so that's, that's sort of the, the, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to those sorts of things. You know, I gotta just, this is why these conversations are priceless mm. is because the real talk, the real sharing and for our listeners to this conversation, I want to make sure you listen to all of the conversations because on another conversation, you'll get to meet Donna Jordan, who does have three children, and all three of them are on the spectrum, to Joe's ah. Joe's point. And so uh, I, I think that that was really powerful, Joe, that you brought that up, because some families might uh, feel like, I, I, I just don't believe that we can step into even the possibility of mm-hmm. that. And another family might say, you know, we're going to step into that and we'll orient to it as it unfolds, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to say this uh, also to our listeners, urging them to hear all of these conversations, because to Tina's point, Donna mentioned multiple times how she could see God's hand in all of it. Now that doesn't take away, try to imagine it, that doesn't take away how hard it is, but that different ways that God's hand is helping. Okay, Kelly, as you you hear uh, Tina's story and Joe's story, you know, I would look over and see your face contemplating what they were sharing. And how do you receive that? How does that, enter into the heart and mind and imagination of, of a therapist. And would you mind taking a moment, um, Kelly, and sharing a little bit about recreational therapy so that people can have a little bit of a grasp of, of what you do? Um, so recreation therapy is the use of recreation as a therapy to, um, to, enhance the lives of people with disabilities, whether that be physical disabilities or developmental disabilities. Um, in, in this field, I think this field is very important everywhere because it can be used for everybody. Um, and it's very bad, um, especially with children, um, especially with children with disabilities. Um, in a lot of settings, what I, what I think people, the point I think people miss the most is that not everybody learns the same way. And that's where recreation therapy comes in, that we can use, you know, different avenues to go down to get that end goal. And, you know, I don't know. I'm just in love with this, um, mm-hmm. with this field. Um, sorry. she. Um, it's wonderful. Yeah. With me. She's, she's in it with me today. Um, yeah. Um, it kind of breaks my heart, you know, I, I relate to everything, um, that, um, Tina and Joe are saying, you know, my, um, my sister has a set of twins, um, her, you know, her first two were a set of twins. Mm -hmm. One is very social, very physically fit, you know, just very bubbly, just, you know, is kind of a rock star. Um, her, her fraternal twin brother is on the spectrum and, Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it, it, I, I relate to everything that you guys were saying about, did they have more children? You know, what does this mm-hmm. mean? And all those waves of emotions. And 
you know, I just feel like on our end, it, it, you know, I would just preach to anybody, it didn't deter you. You know, there's, there's every type of avenue you can go down and mm -hmm. there, you know, you can get there. And yeah. um, I'm going to have to mute myself for just a second. Sorry. That's beautiful. Okay. Um, Charlene, can you take us back to part of our conversation where we start recognizing that maybe parents aren't on the same wavelength with what they believe their child needs? Um, how do you as a therapist listen to that, lean into that? What have you found to be maybe some surprising ways that you were able to lean in and even maybe some limitations that you experienced um, as you saw that maybe one parent was leaning towards something and the other parent was not leaning the same direction? Uh, what are some things you've experienced along that way? Yeah. And that happens, you know, parents, we all want our children to do the same thing that their age equivalent peers are doing. Um, and so one parent may want their child to learn to run. Um, and one parent may just simply want their child to roll over. I think the important thing as mm -hmm. a therapist is for me to point out to each parent the strengths of their child. Um, this is, this is, the most fantastic thing that I've, I've, he did today, or she did today. Um, she was able to actually move her head to hit a switch that said bubbles. And wow. Bubbles. Uh, yeah. And I think that when you home in and you let parents see and experience and, and then to carry that out at home, those things that the child can do instead of focusing on the things that your child has difficulties doing. I never tell a parent your child will never. Mm -hmm. uh, I have found that mm -mm, there have been people that come out of comas years and years down the road. So I've never, mm -hmm. never say never. Uh, mm -hmm. But I really just feel like it's important to help pull the parent in and show them the strengths of a child and okay. to focus on that and then move from that point instead of moving from what little johnny is doing over here this is what jane can do or this is what mm -hmm. bianca can do and let's do what's best for bianca let's give bianca a way to be included and to engage in the family and in school and with her peers that's, that's powerful uh you know something joe that you said that relates to how i'm hearing charlene's description of this you said that one of the things early on that you had to determine was that we, this would not steal our joy. And uh, in, um, I remember one parent sharing that it took around three years uh, to potty train their child, right? And so we understand that some children with developmental disabilities or whatever may never, you know, of course, Mm -hmm. skill. Uh, some parents are used to a much shorter time frame. And so this parent was sharing that when their child, after three years, was finally body trained, they threw a celebration, <laughs> you know, end all celebrations. And they pointed out that one of the things that people forget is when you have gone through great trials, the victory is incredibly sweet. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, I, and that was really, really beautiful. So one of the things we want to do is we kind of turn this conversation uh, toward the home stretch is I want us to think for a few minutes and share, share together what respite care feels like. Some, a theme that I hear, the therapists that I listen to and also the family and, and um, uh, parents that I listen to, is that this is, this is 24-7. I mean, this it, it is, uh, Joe, you mentioned planning differently, implementing mm-hmm. differently, even just rather than going and dropping off this child with the grandparents, it's planning how that interface is going to take place. And I think that heightens the awareness of people who would be like, you know, I'm taking that for granted right now. I'm not really thinking into mm-hmm. the world of a family with disabilities, right? right? So the question maybe that I would like each of you to say a little bit about is respite care. How does a family feel okay about wanting a break? You know, mm-hmm. and how does a family navigate finding a way uh, to do that and what are some of the maybe hardships that most people would not know or would not see. So Joe, why don't you kick us off on this one? Sure. And then uh, Tina, if you'll follow. Okay. Joe. I think um, for us, once you enter the, the sort of the, the, the group that you're entering when you get a diagnosis of, of developmental disability or autism, you start to see channels open up simply because of your new networking opportunities. And so you start to meet therapists, you start to meet uh, people who like you are, uh, are going through the same thing and they might be a number of years along. And so you start to rely on your new social network to help you understand the, the language that you need to use as well as the resources that are available. Uh, and so when, when you, when you uh, get into that, that network of people who are helping you along, it's sort of an informal process of learning what is available and what, who is offering you, what church is offering respite nights mm-hmm. on Friday nights every month. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what nonprofits are out there that might be able to do something a little more long term if 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 that's the that's the opportunity. And so what we found is we started meeting people who have been through it, we started to be directed towards those resources. And so the 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 hardest part is learning to walk that walk, right? And and understanding how to take advantage of those things. And then teaching your friends who you have already built a network with that, hey, things are different now. We can't just come mm-hmm. come over on a Friday night like we normally could if we need to uh, consider this an adult-only uh, double date, for instance, right? And so, and so you train yourself in your new network. Then you try to train your old network that you want to maintain contact with to understand what it's going to be like, and everybody starts to move in that direction, and – and I'd say uh, the the big thing for us has been just the the amazing people we've met that 
offer these services. You know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to name some names just off the top of my head. You know, uh, a lady, uh, her name's Amy Corrigan and she operates a, a, a respite care facility and an academy in Roswell. And so she had a daughter who had Down syndrome uh, who had passed away. And so she sort of dedicated her life going forward to doing something for the community. And so we got to know her. We've been through her, uh, her, her facility and worked with her. And, and then St. Anne's Catholic Church does a respite night every so often on mm-hmm. Friday nights. And it's great. It's right, right near us. And so there's just, but these are things you learn. And, and it's the, the learning and the training that's the, the, the tough part. And once you start getting your legs mm-hmm. underneath you, you start to get understand that it's going to work. I love this. So, Tina, before you jump in, I want our, I want our listeners to capture informal networks and form, more formal or structured networks. Right, right. And I love the way you said it. You retrain yourself for the new network, and then you got to mm-hmm. retrain the old network, right? That's right. That's so powerful. So thank you. So Tina, uh, uh, I was watching you nod your head on some of that, and I know you have unique experiences, so why don't you share a little bit of that with us? We took advantage of the support group in Gwinnett County called Spectrum. We'd go there every month, and Matthew would get a chance to be part of their social group, and we did their Saturday social groups for quite some time. as well. Now, one thing that's different because Matthew's older than Wyatt is, Matthew, as he's gotten older, has become a lot more independent and able to be left on his own. So I don't have quite that much concern about finding who it is that can keep an eye on him because I can leave we can we can leave for a few hours and just say, well, he'll be he he can take care of himself. He can get stuff out of the refrigerator. He can get in touch with us if if we he absolutely has to. So that's developed some independence on his part, and that's been good. I think if I had it to do over again, I'd be a little bit more proactive and aggressive in finding some of those support systems like Joe talked about because sometimes it can be there are parents who have a hard time <coughs> saying hey I need the help here and I can think of a few times the biggest struggle we had was trying to get someone to watch Matthew so Frank and I could have some counseling together that was just hard, almost impossible. We ended up, I think Matthew was like nine, ten, or whatever. We ended up bringing him with us, and he stayed in the waiting room while we went and we talked to the people. But that was how we figured out that, hey, he's learning how to be independent. You just tell him you stay here. We give him something to do, like play, play, with, play with his Game Boy, and he'll do fine. So... Yeah. I guess I'd I guess I'd encourage any parent is that just make sure you're very proactive in developing your support system. That's really strong. And uh, again, I, I love capturing these these nuggets, Tina. Is on the one hand, you were growing into it, mm-hmm. and then on the other hand, you just had to take some risks and kind of step right. out there and try some things. But then you learn mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I think yes. Um, uh, Charlene, you've heard Tina kind of describe a little bit about Matthew and this experimentation with employment, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and, and the students you work with are, I mean, that's a broad range of age. Are, is there something that you have observed about uh, that navigating that independent move to try to see if a child can or a young person can pursue that level of independence to seek out employment? Um, what has been some of your experience and observation in watching families? And I'm fortunate as well to work in Fulton County. And um, much like Gwinnett, we have our program is called CBI, Community-Based mm -hmm. Instruction. Yeah. And um, that's when uh, our students, when they uh, transition to high school, will be able to start out first uh, with job skills. And that job mm -hmm. skill might look like how to greet someone coming through the door. It may be just mm -hmm. a social skill. It may be how to separate different sizes or colors of envelopes into stacks so that they can be distributed. So they start within the school setting itself, doing little job tasks around the school to build those basic foundations. And then as they matriculate through the older grades, they have an opportunity to go out into the community and uh, do some uh, under supervision and within the program uh, to do some activities within the community. And it might be uh, something as simple as um, um, working at uh, Arby's or cleaning the table. Now they've started cutting back, sadly, on these type of programs because of funding. And so more and more it starts to look like running a coffee shop within the school setting itself. But again, learning how to count money, learning how to um, fulfill an order for a teacher, uh, going grocery shopping. So part of the daily life skills are built into that program too. And so that's okay, can you, can you speak a little bit to that, those daily life skills as well? Mm -hmm. uh, so the daily life skills is, as far as being part of the CBI program. Um, and again, unfortunately, it's cut back on some of the programs, but the students would actually have to learn to dress for work. So they actually had uniforms. So that was part of the therapeutic part might be to teach in a, an individual how to don and off, off their, don and off, put on and off their clothing for work, uh, how to um, go down the aisles and choose appropriate things off of a menu, how to read a mm. menu, whether it be a written menu or whether it be a pictorial menu, because some students can't read, but they can definitely recognize McDonald's and a hamburger and, and things like that. So um, those are the type of life skills that um, they work on outside of the school and within the school. Also, simple things like how to uh, use a microwave, how to, because some students, you know, are at home, like Matthew, like you said, Matthew has the ability to stay by himself sometimes, but they need to know how to use, this is how you use a microwave. Things are already in, in the refrigerator, or this is how you mix something. It's as simple as this and that. So those are the basic life skills that the students are taught in school as well. You know, it's so exciting to, to hear it. What's really wonderful, and I'm sorry that Kelly had to uh, mm -hmm. from our call, but it's so wonderful to have two parents and two therapists on this call. 
because we get to hear the different sides. So as you have the parents talking about merging into their networks, well, you're in those networks, you know, your counterparts. Yes. And that's very, very exciting. And so I want to, I really want to thank you for helping us today. And what I'd like to do is just would each, each of you just kind of share a closing thought. Um, it's just maybe something about, uh, how you would encourage a uh, a parent or a therapist in their relationship with uh, a child with disabilities. Tina, start us off. I often say that in my house, life life with my son is many things. One thing it is not is dull. <laughs> you. <laughs> life with a child that is somebody with different needs it is hard and it is challenging but if you look there are some very wonderful blessings that are there that you would not know that if you had not been gifted with that child incidentally the reason Matthew's name is Matthew is because the name means gift of God. Because I considered him to be a gift from God, and that was why he got the name Matthew. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you, Tina. Charlene? <laughs> um, almost forgot the question. <laughs> but um, <laughs> A word of encouragement. A word of encouragement. Yeah, my words of encouragement is, you know, I just push for, um, for us all to, when we look at disability, don't let disability define one's character or their person mm -hmm. or what they might bring to your life. You know, that's not, you know, I, 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 I'm so cautious and, and don't want people to immediately see a disability and put labels. Mm -hmm. um, the disability doesn't minimize how much someone wants to be included. You know, uh, yes. want to be included as well. So it's up to us. It's our disability, in my opinion, when we can't recognize that each individual is unique and can bring something to our life. And I think we lose out. So I would just encourage everyone to look at their own disability, not recognizing that, and and to you know look at our our individuals, children, adults. Uh, whether it be developmentally or, or medically or whatever disability, to look at those and look at the positive, look at the bright things, look at the uniqueness of each one of them. Yes, I love that. You know, one of the documentary, uh, uh, starting a year ago, uh, one of us in our circle, Phil Woody, just <laughs> made a commitment to walk with me on this journey. And so he has been helping me with resources, documentaries over this whole time. And one of the documentaries that I watched, I, I, I can't talk about very much, <laughs> you know, I'll fall into tears the same way that I did when I watched it. But this woman that was narrating this particular point, who herself had a very, very significant disability, said, we determined that because we knew what it was like to be excluded our whole lives, that mm -hmm. would include everyone, no matter what it took. 
and the effort that they went through, mm. hear people that are virtually nonverbal, the effort that the whole group went through, and there's uh, scenes in this documentary where the attentiveness of the whole group waiting for someone to emerge with one syllable. And someone in the group grasps it. And someone says, is that what you meant? Yes. And those moments where no one was moving on, unless everyone had whatever inclusion was available and accessible for them, is very, very moving. So thank you for that uh, great word of encouragement. Joe, why don't you be our uh, cleanup hitter here? Right. <laughs> Okay. And, uh, uh, nice uh, analogy. Right. Yeah. All well, for you. Uh, I, I, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I have uh, two things that I'd like to, to, to sort of close with. Uh, the first, and, and this is directly, Charlene, to you and to Kelly, who's, who's no longer with the group here right now. But, you know, for, for therapists and teachers and those who come alongside parents who are in this journey with their children, uh, you are angels ministering to our children and our families. And, and that's how I see you. And that's how the majority of the people, if not everybody I've talked to sees you. So, so understand that it's a higher calling than just a vocation. We, we, we appreciate it. And, and there's nothing we can do to repay that uh, much less begin to express that. So, so thank you so much for, for the work you do. Um, the second thing I want to, touch on is even though so much of this changes the way we, and this has sort of been a theme for me, right? That changes the way we see parenting and in our relationships with our spouses and with our parents and with our friends. The, the one thing that has to remain constant is, and this is true for any parent, but also especially true for us with children with special mm -hmm. needs is we have to prioritize our marriage constantly and always uh, in, in our efforts to work with our children and to raise our children and to, to bring them to their fullest potential. Because, and, and I know there are, there are people who are going through this without spouses. And, and uh, I, I would say that's, that's, a, that's a very difficult thing for me to imagine as somebody with a spouse who, who I rely on daily. Uh, and I couldn't do it without her. And uh, I couldn't, do this with her if we weren't constantly saying marriage health put your own mask on first right that's the the that's what you do you put your own mask on so that you can help those others and so uh i would say that that's the last thing i wanted to to, to bring to this conversation that's beautiful because in essence that also goes back to where you took us earlier about the support system because that's right up close and personal mm-hmm you know, is that support system. In another one of the calls, um, the family has four children and one uh, 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 on, uh, with very significant uh, disabilities. But one of the daughters uh, in the family emerged into a really gifted caregiver and uh, did not lose herself, but emerged into a very gifted caregiver. And there is no doubt that some of that had to example you know that she saw well I want to thank you so so much 
Of course, we uh, also offer our, our deep thanks to Kelly for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Love first, I know.